Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Marvin Swartz, MD, is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University. He's also served as a member of the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Mandated Community Treatment and a co-PI on several NIH studies of intervention effectiveness. We were excited to speak to him about mental health care and how the shortage of mental health workers and inadequate support for mental health services, especially in a rapidly growing state like North Carolina, affects patient outcomes and contributes to moral injury. Let's have a listen. Dr. Swartz, I am so glad to have you here on the podcast today. Thanks very much for having me. Could you just tell us a bit about your background? What do you do for work? Well, um, I'm an old guy, so I've done (laughs) a lot of things over my career um, of about 40 years. So after I trained in psychiatry, I worked in a variety of settings. I worked in uh, prisons. Uh, in North Carolina, different levels of custody, so maximum security, medium, and minimum. So I had those experiences. I've worked uh, for a large stretch of my career. I was an inpatient psychiatrist, so I took care of pretty acute uh, people in Durham. Uh, some were Duke students, some were other Durham residents, some came from other places, but it was a acute service for pretty sick people. And um, uh, had mainly an inpatient service and um, helped run those services. But I also, all along this time, did research basically on mental health policy and what we'd call mental health services research. So the effectiveness of services for people with largely severe mental illness and also the interface between uh, people with mental illness and uh, criminal legal system. And has all that been in North Carolina? Yes. Yeah, I've been in North Carolina throughout. Oh, that's great. That means you know the system there very well. Yes, for good or for bad. (laughs) So what is your position now? So I run an educational program for the state that has to do with trying to support the healthcare workforce not only mental health, but the entire healthcare workforce, trying to recruit, retain, and train them. Uh, And then I do research on um, that interface or how people with behavioral health conditions fare in the justice system and ways to divert them and the effectiveness of those diversion techniques. And I have a small private practice. Wow. Along the lines of how folks manage with mental health in our communities, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in the emergency room mental health world? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of people refer to the emergency room as sort of the canary in the coal mine. And what we've seen now nationally and in a very alarming way is that there's many people who come into the emergency room for mental health treatment or behavioral health treatment. So that would include substance abuse. If you say behavioral health, you're including mental health and substance abuse. But um, they come to the emergency room and there's nowhere to go. There's no beds or there's a vast shortage of beds. And, uh, you know, in some areas, 
some geographic areas, there's more paucity of beds, but also by types of conditions. So there's uh, a very alarming shortage of child beds uh, and substance abuse beds and even adult beds. And um, there's a very alarming shortage of publicly funded beds or state hospital beds because by policy, North Carolina eliminated half of its state hospital beds. So those are, those are beds for people who have no other funding. Why, or, why did that happen? So most states have pursued that. And the idea was that way back when, when state hospitals came into existence, uh, and the name associated with that has largely been Dorothea Dix, who had a national campaign around the time of the Civil War to try to get mentally ill people out of prisons and jails. So we built these state hospitals, and state hospitals, as the name implies, are paid for by states. Uh, 100%, more or less, of the cost of a state hospital bed, for at least for adults, is paid by the state. And with the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, it was possible to treat um, many of those people if they were eligible for Medicaid. Medicaid's the more important payer for uh, mentally ill folks. Uh, be, because Medicaid is a state and federal program, so at a given time, a state is probably paying a third of the bill and the feds paying about two thirds of the bill. So most states have um, approached this strategy where they try to leverage Medicaid because if they can take the patient from a state hospital and get them in a Medicaid service, then uh, the state can put up $1 and get $3 of treatment. And so the grand strategy across states is to leverage the Medicaid program, get people out of services that are totally funded by the state and have the federal government pay two-thirds the cost. So most states have done that, and um, the problem with it, among other things, is that there's many people who aren't eligible for Medicaid. And so if you try to divert them to Medicaid services, it's unsuccessful. So it's fundamentally a money problem and who's receiving funding and where that funding is coming from and who it's going to. Yes, yes. Is there an overall deficit of funding for mental health care? It's a little bit of a loaded question, I know. Um, yes, there is. And, you know, funding for mental health is coming generally from the federal government, from state government, from insurance, and from local communities. And all those... Uh, payer sources have gone down by and large coming up to the present. So the federal government has reduced um, its uh, support for mental health. That's sort of from the Reagan administration forward. Um, most states have done that because they feel like uh, they can rely on the Medicaid program to fill the gap. And so they don't need to put as much money into it. And similarly, counties uh, have thought that they could reduce their spending and let Medicaid take over. As a result, is there also a workforce issue? Are there enough people working in mental health, both obviously physicians, but all of the other folks, nurses and support staff, 
Um, is that also a problem? Uh, it's a huge problem. There are many reports that refer to uh, the behavioral health workforce uh, as in crisis. And they point to it as an aging workforce that isn't being replaced by younger people, uh, a very stigmatized workforce. So they pick up the stigma of treating a stigmatized population. They're poorly paid. Um, and regrettably, their training hasn't kept up in the sense that they lack cultural competence. They're, and they're not only is there a shortage, but there's a maldistribution. So mostly the mental health workforce that exists are clumped in major cities or metropolitan areas. So you have a shortage and a maldistribution. And it's not like, well, we have a shortage of psychiatrists, but we have plenty of psychologists and counselors and social work. No, we have a shortage of everything. And that, it's as I said, it's aging, but the the lack of diversity of that work of that workforce is also a problem. So I think I've read that almost half of the counties in the U.S. don't have a psychiatrist. Does that seem right? So I, I think that's probably correct that uh, many counties do not have a psychiatrist. And, you know, I was involved in a study in which we said, Okay, well, if there's a primary care doc in that county and some other mental health professional like a psychologist, then you can attenuate that problem of a shortage of psychiatrists because you could pair the primary care and psychologist. Then it doesn't work because the distribution of those other mental health professionals is very similar to the psychiatrist. So um, we need a different solution. Right. So if you don't have the workforce, you have large swaths of the country that are struggling to provide any mental health care. And you've also cut back the beds and you've cut back payment for any mental health care or behavioral health care, because we should lump substance use disorders into this as well. So no wonder there are these, these stories that we're hearing about children being in emergency rooms for days on end, or even adults. Absolutely. And I was remiss in not talking about reimbursement and the fact that the mental health workforce is dwindling in part because reimbursement for treatment is so poor. And in terms of at least psychiatrists, because reimbursement from private insurance is so poor, about half of psychiatrists, and I would imagine psychologists don't take don't accept insurance that they have cash practices which is a real tragedy because your headcount is really an overestimate if you say there's a thousand psychiatrists in North Carolina there's really only 500 that are serving uh, people with insurance can you talk a little about how the connection between outpatient and inpatient and ER visits works yeah, so when uh, lawmakers ask the question, how many beds do we need? You know, how many, they hear the problem where, say, in North Carolina, uh, you can wait, I think you, you probably wait on average five to 10 days 
in an emergency room to get to a state hospital. And for private hospitals, for privately insured people, it's some better, but it's still a long wait. Now, when those lawmakers say, how many beds do we need? The answer is it depends. Because the number of beds you need is really in sort of equilibrium with the outpatient resources because there's some outpatient resources that would prevent the need for an inpatient bed. And we don't necessarily only need hospital beds. We need things that serve that function. So, for example, um, you know, instead of a hospital bed, you might have a specialized residence with with mental health workers, you know, sort of wrapped around the patients, and you might not need that bed because you have an alternative resource. So, you know, a region really is an ecosystem where you have outpatient therapists, uh, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, who are providing care and hopefully averting the need for inpatient care. But once you get the emergency room, uh, emergency rooms generally don't have that much capacity to definitively treat people. You know, more or less, it's a clearinghouse for admission. Um, now, if you had more robust outpatient resources, then it might function differently. But you really need a robust environment of outpatient services that could take the place of inpatient services um, if you want to treat people in the community. Yeah, so this goes back to when the Community Mental Health Care Act that President Kennedy signed, it went into effect. And so we started closing down our state psychiatric hospitals with the intent of opening up community mental health centers, but only something like half of them actually came to fruition. Yeah, that's that's correct. And um, there was great hope that we would build the intent, as you know, was to build one mental health center, community mental health center for every 200,000 population. And so every community of 200,000 people would have one of these things. And the federal government started uh, building them or paying to, for them to be built. But um, not too long thereafter, the federal government um, lost its appetite for supporting these centers. Uh, and they started to nudge them towards reimbursement from insurance or private pay and really reduced their commitment. Now, at the end of the Carter administration, you know, the Carters were very concerned, particularly Rosalind Carter was very involved in mental health services. And they got passed through Congress uh, a very broad-based plan to revive community mental health centers, continue to open them and support them and continue to give them federal aid, the federal aid that was um, dwindling. And it passed and there was great enthusiasm. And then Jimmy Carter lost. And one of Ronald Reagan's first act was to veto the funding for that bill. And that was really the death knell of the community mental health centers 
movement was cutting off the federal funding for them and telling them you have to make it on uh, reimbursement from insurers or cash. What's the underlying driving force behind this? Is this finance? Is this stigma? Is this community not understanding? Is this like, where does it come from? Uh, I think all of the above. Um, I, th I think the fallacy of deinstitutionalization and the, and the fallacy of believing that people can live safely in the community uh, without extensive supports was that uh, we could easily put together the kinds of services people needed to live well in the hospital. And if you think of the state hospital, even though the state hospital wasn't good, they were largely custodial institutions by the time Kennedy um, promoted the Mental Health Centers Act. Well, when you were in a state hospital and you stayed for any length of time, you got food, shelters, medical care, psychiatric care, transportation, income support. Putting those together in the community outside the hospital was going to take a lot of coordination. And I think the belief was that these new drugs that were coming out in the 60s with the introduction of Thorazine, Lithium, Haldol, that those drugs would relieve the need to provide the kind of supports that we now understand people need. Mm -hmm. And housing be another important one. And I think if people had said, no, we're not going to really save any money, we're going to have to build in a decentralized way the services that people get in these institutions, it might have worked differently. But that wasn't the way we made that planning, we thought, well, with these new drugs, people will be uh, able to function well in the community. Yeah, it's 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 astounding when you put it that simply, isn't it? Because it seems almost obvious how complicated it is to put those pieces together. Yeah, and I would say the other big um, change has been the um, attitude of the federal government towards funding local services. You know, the Reagan revolution really changed sort of the whole ethos of the great society so that, you know, Reagan's new federalism uh, was such that he thought um, federal government ought to get out of communities and get out of supporting local services, that that wasn't the role of the mm -hmm federal government. And so they cut off the funding to local services, by and large, all kinds of services. And um, that started, you know, the the shrinking of all kinds of services. The, the other one that's, you know, vitally important, as you know, is housing. And the housing stock in this country, certainly housing for people with disabilities is in terrible shape. There isn't a single uh, metropolitan area or, house, or market in the U.S. that a person living on disability can afford to rent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There is nowhere you, if on disability, uh, you you could rent a, on your own a single bedroom apartment. Yes, yeah, stunning, isn't it? It's it's so obviously not working, and yet you know we're talking 
a substantial amount of time since Carter and Reagan and Kennedy uh, that this stuff's been going on for. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how moral injury might be connected to some of these issues, particularly the care of folks with behavioral health issues and the way that we manage that as physicians? Sure. You know, I part of my role is teaching or supervising trainees. So psychiatry residents, psychiatrists in training and med students and counselors and social workers. And one of the things I hear repeatedly and painfully from these folks who are providing frontline care is that it pains them to no end that they can't provide the resources for the patients that they're seeing, that the solutions that they have at their fingertips are inadequate. Mm -hmm. And they have to do things and uh, that they don't want to do. For example, our system has sort of devolved to involuntary commitment that the way to get a bed, a public bed now, is to um, document that someone's uh, dangerous to self or others, and that's sort of become the uh, the entry for public beds. And if you talk to our residents who do that day in and day out, it pains them enormously to have to to, to label someone as involuntary just to get them the care they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or to refer people to services that they know are not very good, but have to say to the patient and to the family um, something hopeful when they don't feel hopeful themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's moral injury in a nutshell, isn't it? So let's change tacks a little on, on your situation. You're now in charge of mental health care for the United States. Where do we go? What are some of the things that you can imagine we could do? So one big thing, uh, which we have not mentioned, is ending insurance discrimination. Mm-hmm. So starting in 19, around 19, mid-1980s, this industry arose in which um, insurance entrepreneurs approached larger insurance companies and employers and said, you're spending too much on mental health. That you, you know, the proportion of your claims for you, the Blue Cross, Blue Shields of the world, are way too high in terms of mental health. And if you set aside the money that you were spending on mental health and give it to us to manage, we can reduce your cost because so much of mental health care is discretionary. That, you know, people who are the worried well are going to see therapists and that's not medically essential or it's not medically necessary. And that industry was enormously successful. They cut half the money out of private insurance reimbursement in mental health. And that's why you have so many mental health professionals doing cash-only businesses or not accepting insurance. That's why people were driven from the field because they have, you know, psychiatrists have lower salaries than other medical professionals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you try to uh, get a person a service in private insurance, 
there's m- much greater barriers through utilization review. Mm. So finding, getting a bed and getting a bed approved in a mental health context is much more difficult. Now, there are laws against this now, against this insurance discrimination um, that actually was the most definitive bill and the bill we have now, which is very comprehensive, was actually signed by uh, George W. Bush and then amplified by Obamacare. Mm-hmm. So, in but what we neglected to think about or to really follow through on is the enforcement. We have wonderful a wonderful law that makes it illegal to do these things, to have differential co-pays, to have different, essentially, benefits for mental health and med surge services, but the enforcement wasn't well thought out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we need, infor- we need to figure out how to enforce what's called mental health parity. We need to restore the state and federal funding for mental health services and also reopen enough beds so that there's a decent number of public beds. And then we need a ton of supported housing. So that's housing in which people can live in normal apartments, apartments of their choosing, but you wrap the services around them. So that even a person who's homeless and um, abusing substances can move into that kind of housing, but they have supportive services around them that still works with them to try to get into recovery. So we need we need supported housing. We need a lot more money into services. We need to work hard on restoring the mental health workforce. Uh, we need to think about what other kinds of people, like people in recovery, how to encourage them to, to support people in the field. Uh, we also need to uh, prevent some or eliminate some of the barriers to using what's called medication-assisted treatment, in which um, people with, say, opioid disorder can get from their primary care doc uh, a medication that will alleviate the craving and need for opiates. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there's probably a lot of other things, but that would be my top list. That's a, that's a pretty good start, and it's not trivial to get through that, but uh, it, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about these issues without talking about some solutions, obviously. Dr. Swartz, thank you very, very much for both coming and joining us and filling us in on some of these issues that are obviously of tremendous importance and tremendously underappreciated and underfunded. Thank you for what you do in trying to alleviate some of the suffering in this area. There are a lot of people who I'm sure you have touched individually, but also at a a bigger level as well, and we appreciate that. And uh, thank you for joining us on a small little podcast um, and, uh, and coming up with some of these things. We hope to continue the conversation at some stage in the future. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Swartz. It was really great to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So, Simon, I thought that was a really fascinating conversation in the not most great way. (laughs) That's uh, true. Yeah. It just, the state of our mental health care in this country, when I was practicing, which was 20 years ago, was bad. And 
I think it has not gotten at all better. And probably with the pressures of the pandemic, it's really laid bare all of the vulnerabilities in our system. Our pair vulnerabilities, our inpatient capacity vulnerabilities, our outpatient capacity challenges. And I think it really is is driving us to a point where as a country, we're going to have to rethink what our priorities are and how we're going to view behavioral health care as a whole. You know, as I was listening to this, it did occur to me that assuming that other services are going down the same slope and same trajectory, ignoring mental health care is something that I think people have gotten away with for quite a long time. But it may not be too far in the future that we're seeing some of the same challenges happen with routine medical and surgical care. Honestly, I think we're already seeing it in emergency room care, and we're seeing it in primary care. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I routinely have friends who wait six to nine to 12 months to get a new primary care doctor. And they're doing it every two or three years because they change insurance or their physician leaves. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the other flip side to that conversation was talking about some of the fixes. And I think Dr. Swartz has incredible perspective and longevity in his thinking on this, particularly since he's seen this through several administrations, as he alluded to, both the funding, the insurance equity issues, and the need to enforce insurance issues, the staffing and the lack of staff, and perhaps at the top of the list, the fixing the, of the integration between inpatient services, outpatient services, and all of those wraparound services that allow us to have outpatient mental health care. I mean, I, I think understanding that we've kind of been through a series of different ways of managing behavioral health. And that if we're going to continue to modernize our system, we have to integrate those services in a much better, more comprehensive way that is adequately funded and adequately enforced where we have private funding. And it has sufficient respect. Yes. So the other thing that I was really struck by with that conversation was he spent 40 years addressing North Carolina mental health. He has 40 years in the same state, and that is a level of institutional knowledge that is so rare these days, and it's so valuable. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. Our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work that we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thank you for listening. And stay well. Stay well.